Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison, and I'm delighted today to be joined by the one and only David Emmett of Motomatters.com. Hello, David. Hello, Neil, and I'm delighted to join you, um, uh, even though I just saw you a couple of days ago. Exactly. That is a first. Someone delighted to, to see me and hear me <laughs> after being with me for a couple of days. So David and I are here to speak to you about the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello and the Grand Prix of Catalonia in Barcelona. Uh, it was a back-to-back doubleheader, and uh, I think this is the first time we have spoken to you since uh, since the French Grand Prix, so lots and lots has happened in between uh, the French Grand Prix and now. Um, basically, David, we've had two races, and we don't really know what has happened. Uh, the championship just keeps getting stranger and stranger. Uh, Andrea De Vizioso and Giacchetti have won back-to-back races. Um, we've seen disasters for Honda at one race, and then them doing okay at the next, and vice versa for Yamaha. Um, what is going on? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, what is going on? It's I suppose it's complicated as uh, uh, as a Facebook status might have it. Um, there is um, uh, all sorts of things going on. Uh, I think at uh, Magella, especially. I mean, uh, a lot of it is 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 just track conditions. The um, uh, Barcelona, the track conditions at Barcelona, especially, were absolutely atrocious, um, and the heat was ferocious and uh, that combination of uh, ferocious and atrocious made for um, some fairly terrible uh, terrible grip conditions. Um, that made it very difficult for the Yamahas, which meant they were absolutely nowhere. It made it... Um, Perfectly fine for the Hondas, which love um, which love poor grip. Uh, Magella, we had sort of the opposite. We had you know decent uh, decent tarmac, nice temperatures, fairly average, uh, plenty of grip, and we saw decent Yamahas and the Honda struggling. And it's just it's just uh, the uh, all upside down. And we when we last spoke to the uh the loyal listeners of the paddock pass podcast um it we were pretty much you know penciling maverick vinales's name in on the championship trophy and now we are furiously rubbing it out with our erasers trying to uh, uh, imagine who's which name to put in there because it's uh, it's blown completely open yeah, no, a couple of the names in, in the championship hunt, like Marquez, Pedroza and Rossi, they really come as uh, as no surprise. Um, yeah. But the name that has been a constant in recent races and has suddenly shot up to within seven points of Maverick Final is Andrea De Vizioso. Um, this is probably the best we've ever seen De Vizioso ride, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Abs- absolutely. I mean, he, he's always sort of like shown flashes of brilliance. Um, he's always shown loads and loads of potential. Uh, for example... Uh, oh, 2015, I think um, uh, uh, Qatar 2015, he had a fantastic race and you thought, wow, this is uh, this is something a bit special going on here. Uh, he's often been good at, uh, at Qatar uh, and then he'll sort of turn up a place like uh, like uh, Jerez and be absolutely nowhere uh, and then you think, all right, we're back to the old uh, David Chios. He's also had an enormous, uh, an enormous amount of just a uh, amounts of just appalling luck in the uh, in the past, being people taking it in turns to knock him off of his motorcycle. Um, so yes, it's uh, it, it, yeah, but I think I mean there have been changes in in Dovizioso. There's been changing changes in his uh, in his sort of person in his personal life. He's uh, he was talking about. Um, uh, having had some sort of a, some psychological help, and that's made uh, that's made a huge difference as well. I think it's uh, it's it says it helps him to concentrate and work on details, and the details have really really paid off because we saw just two really masterful controlled races in very very different ways. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, after the the race in Barcelona, you mentioned this uh, this coach that's been giving him a bit of advice and just how to mentally approach and prepare for things. Um, he was talking about the need to stay calm and to look at the bigger picture, which seems quite obvious. Um, and to a 31-year-old 30, like Tavizioso, I guess, yeah. you know, that, that's become quite clear over uh, you know over several years um, but what really impressed me in Barcelona was I don't think he was really ever at the front in any of the free practice sessions or in qualifying um, I think he qualified in the third row and he was just there consistently working on race pace and preparing himself for the race and 
it was interesting that we had a test at uh, the Circuit of Catalonia in May before Mugello. Uh, Davizioso and the Kelly guys were there. And even then, I think Davizioso was uh, outside the top five. Lorenzo was second and Davizioso's lap time wasn't really... Uh, wasn't really up to much um, but when I spoke to him at the end of that day he was just talking about working on race pace he knew that um, it wouldn't be about the fastest guy on track in uh, in Barcelona it would be about the guy that could keep a, a relative pace you know for, for the longest and uh, he just seemed to work throughout the test and through the race weekend to get to that and um, yeah definitely experience in that sense uh, definitely pays yeah, I mean, it was shades of Valentino Rossi at Jerez in 2016 um, because it was, you know, you turn up at the track and you know, all right, okay, uh, these are really weird conditions. This is not going to be a normal race. So you set yourself up for, um, uh, you, you find a way to win. You find a way to, uh, to you work out what, what it's going to take uh, to win. Because uh, the interesting thing was that um, uh, uh, Dobby basically was saying, you know, he it wasn't an especially it wasn't really you know riding flat out all race long he was backing off on the straight um uh, to sit behind pedrosa for uh, for a large part of the um uh, for a large part of, of, of Barcelona and um, um, just waiting to pounce at the end of the race because he knew that uh, he could see that Pedrosa was using up his front tyre and he was saving up his own tyres and and he knew that that was that was the way to win the race yeah, absolutely. And there was a, you know, you could almost take the race at Mugello and the race in Barcelona. They were very, very similar um, in just the way that Davizios were approached them. Yeah, he started off quite steadily, made his way towards the front group uh, fairly quickly, sat behind the leader for about half the race and then moved yep. to the front. And once he moved to the front, he realized that actually I've got the pace to, to, to clear off here. And um, maybe the margins were slightly finer in, uh, in Mugello. I think, you know, Maverick could have looked at that race and thought, had he not run wide at Puccini, just after Davizioso had taken the lead, Petrucci got through in the second. Had that incident not happened, maybe he could have caught, he could have reeled in and caught Davizioso. Um, whereas in Barcelona, it was just, you know, no one was catching him. There was absolutely yeah, no exactly. way. Yeah, I mean, as soon as, as soon as, uh, uh, as soon as uh, Davizioso was past um, uh, Marquez at, um, was it, uh, was past Marquez at, um, uh, at, Barce uh, at Barcelona. Oh, um, uh, it was on the front street, wasn't it? Yeah, yep. exactly. As soon as soon as he was passed passed at Barcelona, it was you know it was just game over. It was just um uh, um he just he just totally upped the pace and disappeared. Uh, it was Pedrosa, sorry, not Marcus. As soon as he got past uh, Marcus um, uh, along the front straight, he was just Pedrosa. Um, yeah, he, he he was just completely, he, he managed to drop his pace and uh, Marquez got past Pedrosa as well, tried to follow him, realised, well, if I, I can, I might be able to follow him, but if I do, I'm going to fall off uh, and um, uh, just gave up. Whereas I think you're right with uh, Vinales and with Vinales and, and Dovicioso, it was um, uh, Vinales, he had a, he had much better pace than he could have, you know, with a little bit of luck, he could have got there, but he just couldn't quite, uh, just couldn't quite make it. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit more unfortunate for uh, uh, for Vinales at um, uh, at um, at Mugello, but um, just just outstandingly managed two outstandingly managed races by uh, Dovizioso. Absolutely. So, in Dovizioso's first 158 MotoGP races, he won one of them. And in the last nine, he's won three. So this is a, this, I think the stats really speak for themselves. This is a, a different kind of Andrea De Vizioso that is coming up against his rivals uh, this year. Now, we must say that um, prior to both the Italian and Catalan Grand Prix, Ducati had tested that both those circuits had private tests there. That obviously had some sort of advantage. Um, but why why was Ducati strong in both of these racetracks when, you know, you had Yamaha, Yamaha faltering at one, Honda faltering at one, and then, you know, the others strong at the other? Uh, why, why have Ducati's been a constant here? Well, I, I think because they're sort of uh, halfway in the, in the middle between Honda and Yamaha. I mean, uh, uh, the Yamahas really thrive on grip. If you give uh, Yamahas grip, then they're just they're, they're just gone. They're they're totally disappearing into the distance. Uh, the Hondas manage uh, low grip circumstances really really well. Um, uh, so yeah, it's easier for them. Uh, it's easier for them to 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 be competitive at tracks with no grip. And sort of Ducati, Ducati are in between. And if they can sort of like um, 
be there or thereabouts, uh, they, they can always be competitive. They can find enough grip. They have enough sort of uh, flexibility um, uh, to be able to go either way. But also, I think, especially Mugello, both Mugello and Barcelona, one of their, their defining characteristics are very, very fast front straights. And it's the place where they can really, really make up uh, make up ground. Because if you look at both uh, if you look at both races, um, uh, the place David Chioso sort of got past and, uh, and made the difference um, uh, was with the with just with sheer top speed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there was also interesting this in the Lorenzo over the over the last weekend, um, in Barcelona in 2016. He had terrible issues with the front tire graining after you know quarter of the race, and he couldn't manage it and just was going backwards. And one of the reasons he said that you know he, one of the reasons he was confident for uh, for a good race on Sunday was that the Ducati doesn't really overwork the front tire in such a way, or it isn't so front heavy in, in in that respect yeah um they had more had to worry about the, the rear tire um which which they kind of managed through the race um so i guess that's another uh another factor that really worked in their favor in, in barcelona yeah and i think also uh, again that's about um, having when you have long straights where where top speed actually counts um then you don't have to manage the rear tire in the corners quite so much because you know you can make up the you can make up the ground um uh, in a straight line because you know the 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 Michelin tires they're pretty much I mean they have uh, they're asymmetric so they have softer rubber on each side to to, to give the maximum amount for, of grip for cornering but then you know they're in in the middle they've got a strip of fairly well rock hard rubber which is capable of uh, uh, of producing drive so um, uh, and capable with withstanding an awful lot of punishment so the Ducatis could just um, whack out in the throttle and uh, once the once the bike's upright they whack out in the throttle and um, and watch the thing disappear yeah absolutely um, I just want to when we're talking about the videos, I just want to add one thing. I spoke to him uh, for an interview at Jerez, and we were talking about the first race of the season in Qatar, uh, where he finished second. And I asked him if that was one of his, you know, what he would classify as one of his best rides ever. And uh, and he said it was. But what was really interesting was that he said that in the MotoGP paddock, and not just the people that work there or that compete there, um, also people that watch, they feel that <clears throat> unless you're a a race winner, <clears throat> a regular race winner, uh, you are not one of the top riders. And he basically was saying in the last four years that he's done enough. Okay, he's not been race winning races all the time, but he's definitely done enough to prove that he has been um, he has been good enough to, to, to basically be in that elite group of riders, the, you know, the, the Marquez's, the Vinales's, the Rossi's. Um, and you kind of feel that that is one of those things that sort of drives the Vizioso is this, you know, underappreciation. He's not quite rated as highly as perhaps he should be. Um, and yes, okay, Andrea Inone may have been faster in uh, in some parts in 2014, sorry, 2015 and 16. Um, but Flip, you know, Davizioso is making Lorenzo look quite average at the moment, and this is Jorge yeah. Lorenzo we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's a very, very good point because he always, in his debriefs, he regularly sort of makes little snarky little remarks about, um, um, you know, not being appreciated and all the rest, and uh, and uh, the top riders and all the rest of it. And um, it's always clear that he feels he doesn't get the uh, the you know the, the the appreciation which he feels he deserves. So uh, yeah, I mean. And that can be a really, really powerful motivating factor. I think you know. I mean, the, the, this, we are talking about you know young men and young women who think it's big and clever to go round, drive round and round in circles on motorbikes and try to do it faster than other people. So yeah, um, not being appreciated for what you've uh, what you've what you've actually achieved, I think, is uh, is a very uh, is a very strong motivator for Dovizioso, and I think he's definitely now starting to make a mark on, um, uh, uh, yeah, stamp his authority on the uh, on the championship, and uh, also perhaps this was also a little bit of revenge for Austria last year when he chose the wrong tire and lost out to Ianoni. Because then he he absolutely felt and believed that uh, he could have won that race um, if he uh, or if he and only hadn't taken the soft uh, hadn't taken the soft tire or if he he'd gambled on the soft tire as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we've spoken a bit about Ducati. 
what was going on with the MIs in Barcelona? Valentino Rossi was a disappointing eighth place at a track where he won last year. And Maverick Vinales at his home Grand Prix was nowhere all weekend. Tenth uh, place in the race. Had it not been for a couple of riders falling out or retiring, we probably would have been looking at 12th, 13th place. Pretty much this was Vinales' worst weekend in MotoGP since he uh, came into the class in 2015. Um, yeah. what, what was going on? I mean, quite simple grip. There wasn't any. And the 2017 Yamaha um, clearly uses the rear tyre a little bit. It uses the rear tyre too much um, uh, trying to get to turn. The bike doesn't want to turn the the turn in the same way that the 2016 bike did. And um, uh, that means that you have to use a little bit more throttle to help the bike turn. And uh, that is uh, quite costly. Um, it, It uses the rear tyre more and so you end up going uh, uh, going much slower uh, both Vinales and Rossi were struggling with uh, with uh, with tire wear but basically the Yamahas just don't work when there's no grip and there was absolutely no grip at um, uh, at Barcelona very much the same as as Jerez it was basically just a it was a repeat of Jerez only this time they were struggling with the rear tire rather than the front tire um, they were both nowhere and um, uh, yeah they just couldn't go any uh, the, the, yeah they just really couldn't get anywhere and compare and contrast with Mugello where uh, both Yamahas were outstanding and if Valentino Rossi hadn't fallen off his motorbike his uh, his motocross bike uh, a week prior to Mugello you have to uh, you have to fancy that um, uh, a little bit of a better result uh, could have been uh, could have been on the cards I think uh, I, I think he thought going into Mugello that this could be the year that he finally sort of bagged one but then he went and banged himself up yeah exactly and was that was that the reason why Rossi didn't win a Mugello do you think uh, uh, well, I mean, it, it clearly it clearly hampered him because when he when we saw him first in Thursday, it, in fact, I have uh, I have now spoken to um, I wrote a story um, uh, before Mugello where I pointed out the um, uh, throughout all of the press release uh, um, all of the press releases which were written about Valentino Rossi's injury, none of them mentioned um, uh, Mugello. Uh, the word Mugello did not appear in them, which uh, sort of in the week before Valentino Rossi's home Grand Prix, which is a big thing, um, uh, you, when when you're not mentioning Mugello in those press releases, that means there's uh, something fairly big going on. Uh, and I've since spoken to two people involved with Yamaha's press releases, and uh, they both said to me, um, uh, yeah, 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 yes, you noticed that, didn't you? So um, I was, um, um, I got to feel a bit smug about that. Um, so yeah, uh, I think so. His injury it, was was quite a big deal, is what you're saying, basically. Yeah, but his yeah. injury was a big deal. But you saw that. I mean, you saw that when uh, when he turned up for his press debrief on Thursday, uh, he was stiff. He wasn't really moving about, moving around in the way that uh, that, that he does normally. He cancelled. He was supposed to be in the press for, in the um, uh, in the press conference. Uh, he cancelled the press conference because he didn't want to to do that. I saw I was down in pit lane on um, uh, on Friday morning for FP1, and he he was really obviously in pain at the end of the uh, at the end of the session uh, but they fixed it with uh, painkillers and physio um and uh, it th- that i think made it made a huge difference but he wasn't he absolutely wasn't 100% fit in um uh, uh for the race in Mugello and i think and i think it really took its toll in the last sort of uh, quarter of the race yeah absolutely <coughs> We saw kind of contrasting fortunes then. Um, Rossi, I think, began to tire, you know, two-thirds of the way through the, the Italian Grand Prix. Um, he was more or less physically not perfect, but a lot better for the, the race in Barcelona. I think he said he could have done with, done with another week off um, yeah. in between the races. Um, well, you you also have to wonder what the... Because it was... It was scorching hot in Barcelona it was uh, I mean the ambient temperature was 31 or 32 degrees and out there on on track I mean it's a because the track is in a little bit of a bowl it really really the, the heat really really collects uh, collects in there so you have to wonder how, how much of that took out of him as well yeah no it's very true very true but but that wasn't his main problem in Barcelona because obviously just the bike was um, were not working yeah exactly um, so it, it was quite strange because in, in Jerez 
Maverick sort of did the damage limitation job and got a sixth place, whereas Rossi took a big um, pre-race gamble with the setup and ended up nowhere. Uh, his bike was vibrating, and you could see in the final laps he was four, four and a half seconds off the the, the guy that was leading the race. Um, but this time, Vinales definitely struggled more. We saw it pretty much from FP1, FP2. Just his body language suggested that he was very much uh, at sea um, and unsure of the reasons why it was going on well. I'm sure he knew exactly the reasons why, but uh, you know, I, can we just blame tires on everything? Uh, we we can if we're called Maverick Vinales. <laughs> um, he was definitely doing his best to uh, blame the tires without um, explicitly blaming the tires. Yes. Um, Anyone uh, wondering what we're talking about? Uh, I think on the slowdown lap of. Uh, uh, you know, after the race in, in Barcelona, Maverick saw on one of the big screens that uh, his, his 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 seat camera was uh, was on, and he made a very pointed gesture of stopping his bike, getting off, and looking at his rear tire uh, while he knew that he was basically on the world feed. Uh, so he didn't say anything about tires. <laughs> no, he just did, just did a great big pantomime gesture of climbing off the bike yeah. and taking a doing the old peering out at, uh, at it and giving it a, uh, giving them a, a proper poke. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there are a few. Uh, well, there's a few riders complaining about tires, and you have to wonder how um, uh, how uh, legitimate those concerns are. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, Maverick clearly believed it was the the tires. But then again, he also said, uh, you know, I was. Um, uh, doing what is it, forty-seven, uh, forty-seven ones, I think, in the um, uh, during morning warmer, and then I can't do a forty-seven-six in the uh, 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 during the race. But then he conveniently forgets that the difference in track temperature was about twenty-two or twenty-three degrees centigrade, which is um, a lot. Absolutely, it was really interesting listening to Andrea De Vizioso on Saturday in Barcelona. He was asked about the, the struggles of the movie star Yamaha's, and he said that he could see just the difference in approach between the two guys. Um, Rossi was not looking for that fast lap time. He was building towards the race. Fair enough, his race didn't go as well as he thought it might have done. Um, but you could see that Vinales was just getting frustrated and the lap times weren't coming and he wasn't able to stay consistent. And just in his gestures, you could see when he was going back into the pit lane, into the garage and speaking to his crew chief, the other guys in his team that, just, uh, you know, he wasn't a guy that remained calm and you have to wonder whether, you know, um, if he had to do that weekend all over again, there would have been a more sort of inner tranquility that could have aided him in the long haul, um, you know, working like Davizioso, as we mentioned at the start of the show. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the the other thing is that, you know, like Vinales came in, he won the first two races. Um, uh, he's been leading in the championship. Uh, I think he, I mean, it's not just journalists who's been penciling his name on the champion, uh, on the pan championship. I think uh, Maverick Vinales has been penciling his name in on the championship and um, he's getting a little bit uh, sort of frustrated. He can see for the first time, I mean, you know, he grew up with one, uh, with one objective, with one ambition, and that was to be MotoGP, uh, a MotoGP champion when he grow when he grew up, and now he's grown up, and he's uh, for the first time he's on a bike which he knows he can win the championship with, uh, and he can see that it's within his grasp. Uh, but there are all uh, so every time he has these sort of obstacles, he becomes very very sort of quickly frustrated. He's a bit like a teenager on a on a promise. For the first time, and you know, can't wait to get it over with. But um, uh, uh, but then all of these obstacles are keep on getting in his way, and he and he's not. Uh, he uh, yeah, I, I think he's not handling them particularly well. But it's not really surprising that he's um, uh, that he's not handling them particularly well because um, uh, you know it's difficult. It is just uh, it is difficult to have the patience. Yes, yes. Uh, young competitive sportsman uh, in getting angry when not winning shocker, <laughs> basically. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I really, I really can't remember an instance of that happening ever before. Definitely not. Yeah, no, no, no. Generally, especially, especially, you know, sportsmen in their um, ambitious young sportsmen in their early twenties are, are well known for um, uh, for their, for their enormous patience and uh, willing to willingness to uh, just let things happen to them. Especially when in front of a home crowd. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so Yamaha. 
rubbish, uh, rubbish race in Barcelona. Honda though were quite strong, and it was just what they needed after the uh, the Italian Grand Prix, which we have to say Marquez did remarkably well to salvage sixth place from. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, um, uh, I suppose you could compare Marcus's sixth place in Barcelona with um, uh, was it Maverick's fifth or sixth fifth? I think in um, uh, in uh, in Jerez, where uh, they sixth. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Both doing uh, both doing the same thing. It's just it's. Um, making the best of a bad job and 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 trying to get as many as many points as possible, knowing that um uh, they will come in handy by the end of the championship. Again, I think the difference between Barcelona between Barcelona and Mugello is just you know grip. Uh, the, the Hondas hate grip and um uh, are perfectly happy when there's no grip. I don't think it's that they're particularly better when there's no grip. It's just that the the rest of the bikes are rubbish when there's no grip, and the Hondas is um. Uh, it doesn't make it doesn't make any difference to the Honda, so their performance stays, stays relatively stable. Where where the uh, the Yamaha just falls off a cliff. Yeah, it's worth saying that in in Italy, uh, most of the Honda riders felt that the front tire Michelin brought uh, was too soft, and we know that uh, Miller, Crutchlow, and Marquez they love to brake late. They yeah. that is the bike's main strength, and to utilize that, um, they have to basically brake as late as possible, and therefore they tend to overwork and overheat the front tire. And whenever the uh, whenever the front tire, even the hardest front tire, was uh, was too soft in their eyes at Mugello, they just found that uh, it wouldn't really turn through those fast S bends. Uh, they were doing so much work, kind of uh, trying to keep up with the with the Ducatis and the Yamaha and the main straight. They were uh, braking as late as possible in the first turn tire temperature came up and uh, yeah then it wouldn't work so well around the corner bits so uh, yeah that was uh, that was really one of the one of the main complaints that we heard there um but yes uh, we thought Danny Pedrosa was maybe going to win the race on Sunday he seemed you know he took pole position very fine style um yeah, you know, he, was, Pedrosa was fast all week. I yeah. mean, yeah, Pedrosa was basically fast all week, and I'd already, I already sort of um, uh, declared that he was going to be an easy winner. But um, uh, in the end, he suffered exactly the same problem. He just wore out his, uh, he wore out his front tire. And I, I think you make a very good point about them using their front tire. But I think the reason they use their front tire because the one thing the Honda does really well is brake. Um, it doesn't accelerate well, so they're trying to, uh, they're, they're, they're having to make up for. Uh, the acceleration for by, by by breaking themselves, and that's just putting so much load into the front tire that it that it just chews it up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so very finely, very finely balanced as we go towards uh, as we go towards Assen and Germany, another double header uh, on two two consecutive weekends um, tracks, which uh, which Marquez really uh, used to his advantage, his full advantage last year to make a quite a decisive break in the championship. Um, but uh, I don't know. This year it, it could be quite interesting um, because I think if it's if it's dry and acid, you know, Yamaha's always go well there. It's going to be cooler. Uh, when it was dry and acid last year, Ducatis were always up in inside inside the top three or top four. Um, and then you know you're not going to rule out Marquez around Aston either. Um, and then we go to we go to Germany, which you know is normally a Honda track, but again cooler temperatures. Yeah, who knows? It's going to be it's going to be very interesting to to see what happens there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Aston, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Aston is a Yamaha track, and uh, uh, I think um, Valentino Rossi is going to be there. He's going to be uh, feeling fit. Uh, he's going to be because uh, he'll be recovered. Uh, it's been over a year since his last victory, Barcelona 2016. Um, uh, he really, he really, really, really wants to win again. He has a, a habit of winning at um, at uh, at Assen, um, especially when you know, especially winning there after a very long dry periods. Yeah, 2013. So, yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely going to be. I think he's going to be the man to beat going into the uh, into the weekend. But as you say, Marquez is fantastic there. Uh, Maverick is going to be really, really good there. Um, yeah, there's 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 a lot to look forward to. There's going to be a lot a lot to look forward to. And if the uh, if the G- if the Ducats can get into the mix as well, as far as I, uh, at the moment, the um, uh, weather forecast for um, Assen is. 
going to be uh, you know dry and reasonably warm but it's still 10 days away so that could um, that could completely change by then and then uh, the, the for Saxony Saxony has been resurfaced and nobody's tested there because they don't have the noise days to actually be able to test there um, because the thing is I mean the, the circuit is almost in the middle of the town uh, so they can't uh, have MotoGP bikes going around going around there all the time so it's going to be very very interesting with the the, the tyre situation there I think it's going to be very very interesting and uh, we shall have to wait and see how that works out and that might work against the, the Hondas after um, uh, after having dominated there for so many years but then again it might pour down with rain and, and, and it all gets uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's all up in the air again. Sure, sure. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but it is, <laughs> it, but it is just worth going through the uh, the championship standings at the moment. Maverick Canal is, is the championship leader with uh, an advantage of seven points over Andrea Davizioso. Uh, Mark is twenty three points back off Maverick. Pedroza is twenty seven points back, and Rossi is twenty eight. So even though Rossi has had theoretically five or four races where you know it wasn't quite as, as good as he would have hoped for he's still just uh, just over a race went back and must fancy his chances of getting right back into the championship mix at Aston as you say David um, that is pretty much it for the, the first part of this episode of the Panic Pass podcast we're going to take a short break and we'll be right, right back with Moto2 and Moto3 and our winners and losers section David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and a and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. So welcome back to the second part of the Panic Pass podcast. Uh I am here with David Emmett, and we're discussing uh, we're discussing the two recent races in Mugello and in Barcelona. Um, there was a post race test in Montmelo on uh, Monday, and also if you were Suzuki, KTM, or Yamaha on Tuesday as well. Um, some interesting things were going on there. Yamaha were obviously um, bringing a few different components to try and sort out the issues that they've been having over the weekend. Um, sounded like there were some quite interesting results, David, from what Valentino. Uh, was saying on Monday evening. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, um, uh, I think the best part of the test was uh, right at the very end of the test when um, uh, Maverick Vinales and Mark Marquez spent the last 10 minutes um, uh, risking their lives just to leave the test as fastest for no reason whatsoever. Um, uh, but uh, goodness me, young men being comp- wanting to be um, uh, unnecessarily competitive, who would have thought that? Um, it's the second time we've been shocked by that in this show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> start to make a habit of it yeah I mean the, certainly the most interesting thing was that um, uh, Yamaha bought uh, uh, they actually bought two new chassis um, they tested one I think on the Monday and they were going to test the second one on the Tuesday the most interesting thing was that even though um, uh, Maverick Vinales was uh, fastest I think he was uh, fastest on the old chassis uh, he much preferred the old chassis he said it, he said he thought it was the uh, it was the better chassis and he said the same thing um, over the um, uh, uh, over the race weekend, he said, "You know, I've uh, as soon as I got on the 2017 bike, I liked it. It was uh, perfectly well. It was perfectly good." Um, uh, Valentino Rossi, on the other hand, tried the uh, uh, tried this other chassis, this new chassis, and he preferred that. He said it's much more like a Yamaha. It turns a lot better. Uh, it's a little bit less. Uh, st- it, well, you know, well, well, no. What he said was, um, "It lose uh, w- we lose a little bit, but at least it turns a lot better," which is exactly what he's been uh, complaining about for uh, all, all year, and it feels much uh, much more like it and he was a little bit um, he had a little bit of a dig at his uh, teammate as well didn't he yeah, Neil? Maverick Vinales or he said I think Maverick has been on a Suzuki in his MotoGP career and so he doesn't actually know what a Yamaha should feel like and this is what a Yamaha should feel like so a uh, very nice veiled barb in the direction of his teammate there uh, to, to basically uh, Give his, give his uh, young nemesis another thing to ponder. Yeah, uh, exactly. Why your neck in, Litlan? But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was very much. Um, uh, it, it was it, it was. 
quite striking, really, but um, because, uh, entertaining. Because we saw this in Hareth as well. We saw uh, Zarko was uh, was fourth in Hareth, um, not far from the podium, uh, while the factory guys struggled badly. And um, there we thought it was maybe to do with tyre choice because Zarko had gone for, I think, the medium front tyre, while the uh, the factory guys were on the harder one, the harder yeah. option. Um, but at Momello, <clears throat> it wasn't just Zarko, it was Folger. Uh, both those guys were, were kind of, uh, well, Folger was at the front for a long part of the race. Um, he eventually slipped back. Zarko just got stronger and stronger as the race went on. Um, basically left Rossi in his, uh, in his wake. And, um, yeah, this was, this was the second time that we've, we've gone to a low grip track and, and noticed that the tech three guys have been very, very feisty, uh, yeah, quite yeah, a bit better I, than, than the factory guys. It, it is weird because uh, the, the the point of the 2017 Yamaha was to or Yamaha chassis was to make it better, was to make it uh, uh, less tough on tire wear, um, and it, well, you actually saw that at the end of the 2000, uh, at the end of especially the end of Barcelona, um, uh, both uh, uh, Folger and Zarco. I mean, Zarco did a little bit better. He made his tire a lot, he eked out a little bit longer, uh, and actually made some uh, made some progress on um, uh, and managed to actually put some some. Time Time into into Folger, um, but both Folger and, and Zarco were you know much much better for most of the race than um, the, the, than the Yamahas were, and it was only right at the end they actually started losing a lot of uh, losing a lot of ground. So um, it's really it's just very odd that the the you know this 2017 Yamaha is supposed to save the tyres, and yet it was the uh, it was the 2016 um, uh, Yamahas which were which were much much better at it for most of the race, and they uh, you know that they ended up way ahead of the uh, of the of the factory Yamahas uh, at Barcelona, um, and also well the the, the the other thing was that Folger Folger actually tested the two. 2000, or well, he tested a chassis at Barcelona, um, which he wouldn't talk to. Well, he he wasn't sure what it was, and uh, certainly Valentino Rossi was very surprised when uh, when we asked him about it. But um, he said, um, you know, it's more stable in braking, uh, uh, but it doesn't turn as well, which sounds exactly like a 2017 <laughs> uh, uh, chassis. The, exactly the same kind of uh, complaints which um, uh, which Valentino Rossi had been complaining of. So um, yeah, that was uh, that that was. Uh, intriguing that they were giving it to uh, to Folger to have a go on to to give his feedback on. Mm. Yeah, this is kind of where I'm getting a bit confused because you know this the last quarter of 2016 uh, when we were asking Valentino Rossi for the prognosis of what had gone wrong in, in Yamaha's year, one of the com- the common complaints was that that 2016 bike didn't work that well towards the end of the race. Um, so yes, as you say, slightly strange, and I'm sure you know it's something that uh, will become clearer maybe uh, maybe at Aston when we we have the chance to to speak to both Fabric and Valentino and ask them about uh, the second of the the two days that they tested in Barcelona, um, for sure. We also saw Mark. Mark is a little bit happier than than he had been um, perhaps over the race weekend. He crashed five times during free practice and I think warm up as well. And he including, was including tripping over his engine stuff. Yeah, so let's say six crashes then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we want to we want to be particularly mean. Um, but Marquez was fastest in the, 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 the post race test on Monday and he was quite pleased because he tried a different Mitchell and front tire, which he really found to his liking. Yeah, exactly. It was a symmetric uh, front tire, and uh, again, the uh, if anything, it was even hotter during the test than it had been during the race. Um, uh, throughout the race weekend, um, Marcus had been saying, "I don't know why we need to have um, uh, all uh, asymmetric tires because Michelin brings asymmetric tires to um, uh, asymmetric front tires uh, because of the different sort of wear on there." Uh, but um, Pedrosa, or sorry, Marquez was saying that uh, the, the, the 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 if you like the join in extreme heat, the join between the two kinds of rubber, it it, it sort of it goes soft, and so it doesn't provide them the same support under braking, um, uh, especially in the extreme heat. So you know it might work well when it's at sort of normal normal temperatures, but in in very very warm temperatures, it's uh, uh, the the asymmetrics don't work so well, and so he was much much happier with the. Uh, uh, with, with a symmetric tyre. Yeah, 
exactly. What I really enjoyed was uh, Mark telling us how much better he felt with the symmetric tire. Speaking to Danny Pedroza five minutes after, and him just t- shrugging his shoulders and almost cackling, telling us that there was absolutely no difference with the symmetric or yeah, exactly. Because he, he, he I asked him about, I did turn up to his debrief late, so it was my own fault. And then I did ask him about it, and he sort of sneered at me. Um, uh, and I think that was only partly just because I'd turned up to his debrief late, but it was also just, if you like, you know, what do you want about all this symmetric tyre? No, it's uh, uh, stuff and nonsense. So, you know, there might be a little bit of friction in the um, in the Yamaha camp, but there's still, you know, enough to be going uh, going around in, uh, in Honda as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. So moving on to, uh, to the support classes, Moto2 and Moto3, um, the last time we spoke to our dear listeners, it sounded like Franco Morbidelli, had well, let's say a finger from one hand on the the championship trophy, stuff which was his uh, his dominance in the first five races, um, and we haven't really seen that that Franco in either Italy or in Catalonia. Um, we've basically seen Matteo Pesini, Thomas Ludi, and Alex Marquez uh, battering him and uh, performing a little bit better than the guy that we had uh, we had down as the championship favourite. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's been really interesting is the fact that um, uh, Bassini has been fantastic all of a sudden, uh, and I have no idea where that came from, but um, uh, he's always been sort of there or thereabouts, but he could always be counted on to um, find some way to mess it up for himself. Um, But uh, winning, as you see so often, when a rider wins for the first time, it seems to to make a change. So um, this has been the first time that Bassini had won, I think, since his days in 250s 2009 um, yeah but there you go that's that's been a long time and um uh uh, he was he was just outstanding. His passes, uh, the 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 passes that he put on the final lap at Mugello were absolutely majestic. They were probably uh, some of the best passes that I think we're going to see all year, and they're you know definitely one for the highlight reels. Um, uh, just just phenomenal. Yeah, the the the, the diving underneath uh, Marquez at Savelli, the downhill Savelli, and then having the temerity to. To not just settle for that, but then barge past Ludi at the very next turn at the Arabiada. You know, some of the fiercest, uh, most fearsome curves on the entire calendar. Yeah, it was really something to behold. Um, yeah, yeah, and, that, that, it was. It was really, really special. Yeah, and it's uh, Valentino. I loved Ross's quote uh, at Mugello on Sunday evening. He said, uh, "Matteo did the race that every rider, every Italian rider, sits at night and dreams <laughs> of," which is <laughs> yes. which is basically just exactly true. You know, every uh, every uh, every young rider, I'm sure, has uh, has had, had a dream where that was the situation that played out uh, yeah. in order for them to win the, their home Grand Prix yeah absolutely that was uh, that, that, that was um, it, it was a joy to behold that was fantastic and uh, you know he was on the podium again in Barcelona um, uh, Alex Marquez came good you know Alex Marquez um, uh, on the he was completely unstoppable in um, uh, in Barcelona which was just seriously well I mean he was just outstanding um, he was on a uh, different planet, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he really was. Just uh, from the moment they rolled the bike out of the box. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and then Tom Lutie, I mean, Tom Lutie is now, I think, seven points behind uh, behind Franco Morbidelli, and, um, uh, uh, and we've got a championship again. And again, Lutie has just been there by being consistent. absolutely dead consistent. Yeah, yeah. 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 Lutie's already had six podiums this year from seven races, uh, the same number that he had in the last year in its entirety Oof. and he did take uh, Zarco to the penultimate race of last year yeah. uh, in the championship so I definitely think Ludi's going to be there um, maybe I don't see him winning the championship but I really do think he's going to be a very very uh, he's going to be there basically uh, yeah, yeah absolutely but, yeah. I mean that's, that is the, the, the role of, of Tom Luti. Tom Luti is there to be the guy that um, uh, anyone with, with aspirations of moving up to MotoGP has to beat to prove that they deserve to go to MotoGP because he's still a fantastic rider um, who just keeps on missing out on a chance to go to MotoGP sure sure so we've seen um, Morbidelli's uh, advantage get hacked away in the two races, two recent races. Uh, in Moto3, it's been quite the opposite. We've seen uh, Juan Mir a little bit of a setback in Mugello, perhaps. Um, not quite the result he had envisioned. But then there was, a, I think, a 22-rider scrap in Mugello, David, that was uh, that was just <laughs> as breathless as that sounds, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, the Moto3 race was just, insanity and it was a question of just being in the right place in the right time and um um 
outstanding riding by uh, both um, Mino and Di Gian Antonio to make the break at the uh, at the at the right moment. They, I mean, well, break. I mean, it was only half a second or something which they had on the on the rest, but it was just enough to uh, uh, to get them, you know. to leave the two of them to to fight it out uh, for for the win at the end, um, uh, uh, great for uh, great for Mino. Um, I mean, unfortunate for DG and Antonio, but uh, it was still a, it was still an absolute great, uh, just a fantastic battle. I think Juan Mir there just got caught in the middle of the pack, like everyone else. Yeah, sure, exactly. And it wasn't just him; it was uh, you know guys like Jorge Martin. Uh, I think John Murphy got sixth, but you know that wasn't he wasn't taking big points out of his out of his championship advantage. Um, and then we went to Barcelona, and just as it was announced uh, during the race that uh, that Joan Mayer is going to be moving up to Moto Two in 2018 with Mark VDS, uh, a three-year deal which could potentially take him into Moto GP in 2020 if he shows the uh, the, the the required minerals in the, the intermediate category. Uh, Mir basically went from third place to, to first in the, the second half of the last lap with just uh, exquisite timing, um, fantastic precision, and just everything that uh, that you know we've kind of raved about uh, from this this young Spanish kid who uh, who looks really destined for great things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was um, it was it was the the, the strangest timing of a uh, of a of a press release I think I've ever seen. Um, uh, sort of right. It, putting it out right in the middle of a race but um then yes as you say it did seem to be with um the timing did seem to actually uh, work out quite well because uh, Mir ended up um, on uh, on top of the box and with a really really uh, uh again an exquisite last lap perfect uh, perfectly executed passes on the um uh, on the final lap to uh, to take control and to uh, uh, leave uh, Romano Fanati and Jorge Martin um, uh, wanting again so uh yeah Completely disturbed, and he he has been. I mean, Juan Mir really has been uh, just outstanding. Um, we've seen a couple of the other guys. You know, they've been really, really strong in certain races, but no one's been anywhere near as consistent as uh, as Mir so far. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, uh, one of the most interesting things though was that um, uh, at uh, Mugello we finally saw for the first time this year KTM's on the podium. They got their first two uh, their, their first two podium places um, uh, with Migno winning and uh, Guevara taking third. And we've now had uh, again no KTM's on the podium at Barcelona, which means of the was it twenty one podiums uh, podiums so far in Moto three this year? KTM have, have only had two, and they are. Uh, they're really struggling. Uh, KTM team have got a new. Um, uh, they have a new chassis. Uh, Antonelli and, and uh, Ben Snyder were using it, and then I think they stopped using it because they didn't feel it made you know enough of a difference. So um, uh, yeah, they're in they're in a, a spot of bother. Our um, our KTM. Yeah, guys like uh, guys like Bulaga, Antonelli, and Ben Snyder um, names that at the start of the year we sort of figured would maybe have some sort of uh, I don't know some sort of influence on the championship, but uh, really they've been absolutely nowhere. Uh, if anything, it's been Mignot, um and then the two guys, the the Platinum Bay real estate guys, uh, Ramirez and Darren Binder. Yeah, Binder and Ramirez have been absolutely absolutely fantastic. I yeah. mean, it's. Almost odd that this this uh, normally underfunded um, uh, uh, Moto three sort of private uh, privateer team are completely ripping it up because every single race Ramirez and Binder are there um, uh, up and often very very entertainingly so yeah if I was a Moto three team manager a well uh, you know a well stocked team with uh, quite a sizable sponsor I think my um, my recruitment policy for 2018 would be very, very simple. It would just be to, to go down to the garages in the Platinum Bay real estate uh, awning and uh, throw a check at uh, either rider. <laughs> Wave some wadges of large wadges of cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was at the um, uh, I was at the uh, official press conference for the launch of the um, uh, of the Dutch TT in Aston today, and uh, having a conversation with a bunch of journalists, and um, one of them said. Uh, that Darren Binder, he's going to be cha- he's going to be world champion uh, at some point in time. So yeah, I mean, I think that's um, uh, yeah, they're, they're they're doing they're doing exceptionally well, and it's interesting that they're managing it where the KTM IO team aren't. And you know, IO is his team is fantastic. It's incredibly well run. They have everything. It's the factory. It's basically the factory KTM team. But I think the factory KTM. Yeah, I think. KTM were caught napping by Honda's um, uh, 
uh, Honda's new engine. Yeah, absolutely. Which there was a there was an update to that engine just before the first race, and that really caught them on the back foot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they did it. They did it brilliantly because they brought the engine along. They brought this new engine um, to the Qatar test, which was what a week before uh, before the start of the season, and it was only there that uh, KTM realised, oh bloody hell, we're in real trouble now. That thing really has really got some grunt, and uh, too late for KTM to actually go away and find some more horses because. Uh, it, it, all through preseason, KTM's had been really, really quick. Yeah, absolutely. But I have spoken to two Moto3 uh, team managers this year, and I've kind of put them, put it to them. You know, why are Honda ripping it up in such fashion? <coughs> and and they basically said it's just the riders. Honda has got yeah. the better riders. And you kind of look at the the result sheet. You look at like you know Mir, Finati, Martin, Bastianini, Canet. Uh, Digi Antonio, McPhee, and you know it's difficult to argue. I mean, those are those yeah. are you know some of the pick of the bunch. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, 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 yes, they're definitely they're definitely fantastic riders. Um, but if you put a fantastic rider on a better bike than a fantastic rider uh, on a lesser bike, then usually the fantastic rider on the better bike is going to win. Yes, yes, I cannot so, argue with that logic. Yeah. Yes, definitely not. Oh, pardon me. Okay, so David, I think it's time for your favorite part of the show, my favorite part of the show. It's the winners and losers section from the Grand Prix of Italy and the Grand Prix of Catalonia. Okay, so this is basically where David and I uh, both choose our uh, our individual winners. These are people that we think have done exceptionally well in the two races in our eyes. And we're then going to contrast that with the losers from the two weekends. And um, I hope that we have some different uh, ideas in mind so we can have a little bit of a debate. Um, but let's see, David, how about you start off? Who was your big winner from uh, from the last two weekends? Well, I, I, I have three winners, the three Ds. Um, Dovicioso, Ducati and Delinia. Um the three of them all go together Dovicioso because he's just been riding fantastically um, both wins were taken uh, just masterfully they were taken so well they were managed really well they were uh, uh, they were very very mature wins um, uh, that was impressive uh, obviously that's really really good for Ducati to win at tracks I mean for a Ducati to win at Mugello is um uh, is outstanding. I think the the la- what was it the last uh, the last Italian winner at an Italian Grand Prix on an Italian uh, bike was uh, sorry nineteen seventy four. There you go, nineteen seventy four. That's a little while ago. Uh, an MV Augusta. Um, so yeah, that was outstanding. And uh, and honestly, it's a testament to Gigi Delinia. Uh, it's it's been it's the way that Delinia has managed to reorganise the uh, Ducati, the way that Ducati was working internally, um, the way that their test team and the factory and the race team were. Uh, uh, I mean, before Delinia came, they were completely separate entities, and he he just revolutionised that um, uh, that race department, and uh, it's really starting to pay off now. The bike, I mean, the the bike still has serious errors. Both Lorenzo and Dovizioso keep complaining about the the fact that the thing won't turn, um, uh, but it has other strengths which they can exploit to uh, to great success. And Dovizioso really understands how to get the best out of the bike, and has done just exceptionally. Difficult to argue with that. Difficult to argue with the man that won both uh, MotoGP races, uh, one of which being his home Grand Prix. Uh, and that's that you said about uh, the last rider, Italian rider to win on an Italian bike in front of Italian fans. You know, that is, uh, it's going to take some beating. But just to be contrarian, David. Um, because you like to be contrarian. Yes, exactly. Especially when I'm speaking with you. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with uh, with Joanne Mir, and hear me out. Okay, wasn't exceptional at Mugello, but we could say that that was kind of like a a lottery, a bit of a lottery. If ever there was a a Grand Prix that was uh, that was kind of close your eyes and see who can come out on top, it was that MotoGP or sorry that Moto3 race in Mugello. Uh, but Mir in Catalonia, I think, really put um, you know got the championship back in his favour um, and did it so decisively. That a guy like Jorge Martin, someone that is trying to get, uh, trying to get back in the championship hunt, really put a firm sort of, uh, 
I don't know, firm hand in his face to sort of wave him away, you know. And uh, that final move, um, I think it's at turn 12, is it? Um, yeah. You know, just as before they go into the, the final chicane, you know, Martin wasn't expecting that at all. And he was so kind of flustered by the fact that uh, Mir came under him that Finati got by at the, final, the next corner. Um, so I think that was a, a really another example of Juan Mir being exceptionally cool-headed. You look back to um, the previous two Moto3 seasons, um, be it Oliveira or be it Brad Binder, and you see, you know, that the very top guys in the class are the ones that can sit in a league group, think of a plan, and, you know, execute that plan to perfection in the final moments when it really matters. Uh, and Mir definitely has the, the, the hallmarks of that. Um, and the fact that he's also got a, a deal for Bolo Tudebut, uh, three years, Mark VDS, you know, that they have really had a fine eye for uh, for talent in, in previous years. I mean, um, they took upon them Franco Morbidelli, perhaps before he was, uh, you know, an absolute top name. And, um, you know, he could, if he plays his card right in the next couple of years, we could be, he could be a MotoGP rider in 2020. So, uh, Juan Mir, is uh, is my winner from the past two weeks? Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly had everything going from. He also won. Um, uh, well, he's from uh, Mallorca, I think. So uh, Barcelona is as near as it gets to a uh, to a home Grand Prix. So yeah, we have to count that as a uh, in the same sort of way that uh, an Italian winning in Italy, um, uh, it has to be comparable. So yeah, definitely. And as as you say, I mean, uh, if you look at if you look at um, uh, Mugello, yeah, sure, uh, Mir finished seventh. Um, and wasn't close to Migno D and it did Gian Antonio and, and, and Guevara, but because he finished in the second group. But really, the only one of his rivals who finished ahead of him was Aaron Canet. Um, uh, Fanati finished thirteenth. Martin finished fifteenth. Those are the people that he's actually battling the uh, uh, battling for uh, against in the in, in the championship. So even when he had a bad race, it wasn't that bad. And again, I think that's it, it's a. A good, uh, a good example is, um, uh, or it's a good comparison with uh, with Brad Bender last year, who um, could always find a way to win, and uh, uh, when he couldn't win, he always managed to eke out a good result and at least uh, score points on uh, uh, against his rivals, and that I, that I think is something which um, which Mir has done really well. So yeah, I can um, uh, I can entirely understand your choice. It's definitely a choice I can live with. Yes, exactly, and. Uh Let's just uh, let's just remind ourselves that when David says Juan had a, a bad race in Mugello, he was zero point five five seconds off the race win. So <laughs> if that constitutes a bad race for for someone, I think they are doing something right. Uh, okay, so David, I think we're going to go with Davizioso and Ducati and Delinia. Uh, I can't really argue with that. Um, so I guess those guys, that triumvirate uh, of these, uh, will be our winner for for this show. On to the losers. Uh, for me, the loser is um, is uh, Franco Morbidelli because basically he has. Uh, well, I mean, I would say he sucked, but that would be putting it <coughs> a little bit strongly. But he's been uh, positively mediocre in the past couple of races after after completely dominating uh, dominating the first uh, uh, the first five. Um, Four of the first uh, it, five. Sorry, four of well, the he, five. he won four of the five, and he uh, he was in with a chance of winning the fifth until he fell off with uh, with uh, with Alex Marquez, or if he did just just set off second. So uh, yeah, but he just seems to have had no pace. I have to wonder whether because there's there's lots of talk about him now moving up to uh, MotoGP. There's uh, obviously he has an offer from the Mark VDS team uh, to to go to the Mark VDS team. There's talk about which he can turn down if he's offered a, um, a factory contract and there's talk that he may have a factory contract from uh, I think Suzuki so, yeah. oh yeah yeah possibly. Suzuki possibly there was some possibly talk possibly Ducati yeah there's, there's there's some talk that Ducati might be interested in putting him in the Pramac team um, so yeah I, I, I fear he is becoming distracted and um, uh, the, the he also has this incredibly laid air of being, you know, relaxed and laid back and all the rest of it. Um, but that's not necessarily a a sign that um, uh, that he can actually uh, that he really is or that he's not concerned because he he does seem to be struggling a little bit with uh, uh, with results and he's he's getting to the point where he's going to have to turn it around because he's you know he's still leading the championship but he had a massive lead and it's now. 
uh, nowhere near as massive as uh, as it was, and that's uh, that's that could become a concern. Absolutely, and it was interesting. We were speaking to a member of the the Mark VDS team um, about Franco being this cool, laid back, almost like surfer dude uh, character, and uh, yeah, and he told us that he isn't quite as laid back as uh, as he makes out. Um, you know, he can become quite nervous, quite stressed um, whenever the chips are really down. Um, so yeah, you have to wonder whether the last few race weekends that's been uh, that's been a factor. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I was just looking it up, and um, after Le Mans, Morbidelli was uh, twenty points ahead of Luti and thirty-eight points ahead of uh, Alex Marquez. And after Barcelona, he is seven points ahead of uh, Luti and twenty points ahead of Marquez. So he's he's really given an awful lot of points away, um, uh, points which he which he really can't afford to do. Sure, sure. Okay, David. Well, I see your Franco Morbidelli for a uh, loser of the week, and I raise you uh, Aprilia uh, for their Aprilia's MotoGP effort. Um, now, we could sit here and wax lyrical and say that uh, in Mugello, they had the pace to possibly finish in the top five or the top six, um, and the same could really be said of the race in Barcelona. Um, but that was undone by just a series of, of technical gremlins that have continued to raise their head. Alicia Spargro um, ran through, basically Spargro made a bit of a mess of the race in, uh, in Mugello, even though he had really, really strong pace. Um, possibly could have run the pace of, of the guys in the top four um, had things worked in his favour. But he ran off track, he, he jumped the start. Then when he was trying to make up ground, he ran off the track. He Something you know got lodged in his bike and he had to retire in the end. Um, but he was really looking on for a good showing at his home race in Catalonia. Uh, I think he qualified fifth, a pretty best qualifying performance since 2002 in MotoGP. Um, and then that age-old issue of uh, engine reliability reared its head again, and uh, and Espargo basically had nothing to show for it. So two races that uh, that are pretty. Um, sort of let drop by the wayside um, when, you know, something great was in, within their grasp. Um, and I'm not just saying this for, for what has happened to, to Aspargro. It is also, it was quite uh, intriguing uh, to hear of uh, rumours linking other riders to Sam Lowe's seat in 2018 uh, over the, re- the race weekend in Barcelona. Uh, I think Andrea Iannone was a name that had been mentioned. Cal Crutchlow and Alvaro Bautista were also names that had been linked to a seat. Now, Sam has a two-year contract for 2017 and 18 with Aprilia. Um, but basically, the, the sort of the, the racing principal, uh, Romano Alvesiano, was speaking to us on Monday. And he admitted that, um, you know, what he said was uh, Aprilia is is fully behind Sam. They're Sam's first supporter. They've made an investment in Sam. Um, but in case Sam doesn't start showing greater potential, you know, in the coming months, they have started speaking to other riders to potentially fill his position. Um, and I just think that that's, you know, it's a bit, a bit off really um, for, you know, to judge a rider. You get the impression that, you know, they didn't just start speaking to riders in, in Catalonia. So they were judging a rider on his first five showings in MotoGP. Um, a guy that's been on a 600 machine for I don't know how many years. Um, and that's, I don't really think you could uh, you could say that they're giving Sam a fair chance there. Also, the fact that, uh, that Sam isn't on the same machinery as Alish. Um, I'm sure he's on an Aprilia. But um, I don't think he's on the same engine. Um, there's a few different updates that, that haven't really come his way that have been put in the direction of the number 41. Um, yeah, and I just I don't think really they've gone about this in uh, in the right way. Um, I, I mean, how is, how is Sam Lowe supposed to feel when he reads uh, Romano Pesciano's comments uh, in Barcelona saying that they're speaking to other riders? Yeah, exactly. The beatings will continue until morale improves. It's very much that sort of uh, uh, that sort of attitude, which is it, well, it, some some riders it can actually work quite well with, but um, uh, most riders is pretty miserable with. Um, I think um, uh, I think you're absolutely right. It, it, it has been sort of fairly it has been treated fairly poorly. Also, I suppose the most confusing thing is that. Um, uh, um, you know, as we say, he's a he's a rookie. He's only had five races to do it, and yeah, uh, 
it would be fair to say that Sam hasn't been uh, he should have adapted faster um, he's still riding the bike a little bit too much like a um, uh, like a Moto2 bike but um, he isn't on the same engine I mean Romano Alba Bersiano claimed that he was on the same engine um, but if you look at his uh, if you look at his the, the, the engine update sheets um, uh, the point at which he was supposed to have got this new engine um, he didn't get a new engine so uh, there seems to be a healthy dose of alternative facts being uh, uh, being sort of strewn around for for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, giving up on lows too early. Uh, again, the engine, the the, the reliability issue that it, it, it's apparently a problem with the with the pneumatic valves. Uh, something to do with the uh, with the way that they uh, with, with the way that they open. It probably it's probably going to need a. Um, a hardware fix is going to need sort of you know uh, an update to the uh, to the valve closing mechanism to stop this from from happening so yeah generally it's generally been all all around I'd, and i don't think i have ever seen Aleix espargaro look so depressed as um and well angry and frustrated i think uh, as we have after barcelona so yeah uh, I can. I. I think you have a very good point. I think. Uh, I think uh, Aprilia uh, really are the big losers from the last uh, from the last couple of races. We'll go with your winners then, and my loser. Um, just yeah, I don't know if that th- makes you you the winner or, uh, or 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 me the loser or what. But uh, anyway, let's yeah. call it a draw. I think we all know the answer to that, David. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think uh, that's pretty much it, David, unless you have anything else to add. Uh, no, not at all. Um, uh, uh, well, actually, just one little tidbit. It's not really very important, but it interests me uh, anyway. Uh, as I was saying, as at the launch of the um, of the Aston race um, uh, today, uh, they had some interesting uh, figures. The uh, because obviously they switched from from it being a Saturday race to being a Sunday race. For the last year was the first uh, first year that it was a Sunday race, uh, and it really made a huge difference in terms of uh, in terms of audience. So um, I found, or, or in front of the spectators, the 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 numbers of people who actually turn up at the um, uh, uh, turned up. I think there was something like twenty thousand more, uh, uh, twenty or thirty thousand more uh, total spectators over the three days uh, than there was the year before. So yeah, it was uh, it was very very interesting to see what a, what difference that can make. And well, and well, it's my home race, so I'm quite looking. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely, Aston, the only uh, the only track that's been in the calendar since uh, since 1949, every single year, and uh, we very much look forward to going there. Um, so I guess we will next speak to you once the uh, the Dutch Grand Prix has been completed. Um, I'm sure there will be a lot of very interesting stories uh, to tell you off from there. Uh, David, I would like to thank you for offering up uh, your company uh, to me this evening, and I'd like to thank you for being such a gracious host, Mr. Morrison. No problem at all, David. Okay, excellent. So I'm sure we will speak to you once again after the Grand Prix of uh, of the Netherlands at the Dutch TT. And so it's come to that time of the show where I have to thank you, listener, for your company. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Let me remind you that if you're not following us on Twitter, you can do so by following at PanicPassPod. If you're not following us on Facebook, you can do so by typing in facebook.com forward slash podcast. I nearly got it wrong. <laughs> and if you're listening to us on iTunes, if you could leave us a review, that would be sensational because it really helps other listeners find the show. So thanks very much for your company. Thanks for your time. See you soon. Good night and good luck. Yes, exactly. Good night, Vienna. Yeah. Yes. Good oh. job. Tires and then Moto2 and Moto3 and then... Um, um, Bob's your and- uncle. Yeah, exactly. Fanny's your aunt. Fanny is my aunt. Yes, so right. I've heard. Okay. I've been waiting I for an introduction. Wendy was my aunt. I've been waiting for an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Given that most of my aunts, uh, most of my aunts, I only have two of them, are um, actually um, uh, in their seventies. Uh, I'm not sure you have been. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever floats your boat, Neil. Okay, well, (laughs) (laughs) okay.